Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Pastor Brandon, thanks so much for hanging out again. You Uh, betcha, man. Good to be here. What is this, number three, I think, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so we promised a questions and answer podcast. It's way long overdue. You've been super, super slammed, which is good. So tell us a bit. Why don't you catch us up what you've been doing? Yeah, um, been speaking around the country to a lot of different uh, venues, uh, prophecy conferences, but I've also spoken to uh, conservative groups, um, uh, particularly about the Great Reset. And a lot of the conservatives are aware of the Great Reset, but they're not understanding the spiritual ties to it from the Bible. And so what I've been able to do is speak into uh, those groups and connect dots for them. Um, They understand that the world's trying to go to globalism, but I'm bringing in the Bible to help them. So that was, that's been really refreshing to be able to do that. And then obviously speaking um, at different prophecy conferences um, around the country and seeing that, Hey, there's a remnant out there. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of good churches, not a lot of good pastors out there. So a lot of people I talk to saying the same thing, man, um, our church is woke, our pastor's woke, we can't trust them anymore. So they're hanging on by a thread a lot of times from people like you and your podcasts and, and, you know, uh, those of us in the prophecy world that are producing videos and, and podcasts and whatnot. So to feed them. And so what you're doing is great because it's helping them. And um, so it's good to sometimes see the remnant and what's happening, but it's global. We hear it from everywhere, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, England, we hear it everywhere. It's same thing going on globally. Yeah. It's um, it's crazy what, and I'm sure everybody already knows what's going on uh in the world it can be pretty depressing if you have your you know you're watching the news the real news and you know pastor jd farag actually said this past week in one of his uh, in his prophecy update that he does every weekend uh he said you know it's i don't know who to believe anymore (laughs) we're we're at a point where um who do you believe really uh it's so it's super super important that and I'm sure you would agree we would exercise yeah. discernment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we've got a lot of questions. Well, a lot. We've got a handful of questions, but there, there's a lot to each one of those questions. And I'm sure I'm going to throw some stuff out there myself as it comes to my mind. Okay. And because we have a lot uh, to get to in the sense of questions and um, let's just dive right on in because question number one, actually, I've been thinking about that too. You hear a lot of prophecy teachers say, um, keep your eyes on Damascus going back to JD. Pastor JD says that his dad would always tell him, keep your eyes on Damascus. He's repeated it a a lot of times. So we've got a gentleman by the name of Scott Lewis. He posted this question, November 15th. Like I said, this is long overdue, but the question is still apropos. It's it's applicable today. He said, when, how, if any, does the complete ruin of Damascus fit into the timetable for end time? So I'm going to just turn it over to yep. you and, and let us know what you think. 
Great question. I've been asked many times about it. And the problem is when you, you look at that passage, it's not tethered to any event. That's the problem of why so many people have a hard time knowing where to place it. And so, so when we're trying to place it as prophecy uh, guys, uh, we get into the realm of speculation and opinion at that point. So none of us can be dogmatic about it. So we have to give you know our best educated opinion about Damascus being destroyed. So my take on that, and again, it's an opinion because I don't know where to place it uh, as far as what the scriptures say. So my placing of it has to do with placing it in the Psalm 83 invasion. And the reason I place it in there is because Psalm 83 is an all Arab invasion and it's an all country invasion, whereas Gog of Magog is a non bordering invasion and it's a non Arab invasion. So there's a distinct difference between Gog of Magog invasion and the Psalm 83. Now, to flush this out a little bit, um, Psalm 83, sort of some prophecy guys uh, say it happened in 1948, or they say it continued from 1948, 67, and 73, Gom Kippur. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that. And, I, and the reason why is, if you look at 1948, 67, and 73, the aftermath never occurred. And there's a, a considerable amount of scripture that deals with the aftermath of Arab countries um, after Israel basically routes them in the Psalm 83 invasion, destroys them. So, so basically what happens, if you look at Isaiah and I think in Ezekiel and Obadiah and other passages, it talks about the aftermath. So here's my thing about the aftermath. I believe the aftermath found in these other passages would include the destruction of Damascus after Israel throttles the Arab nations around her in, in Psalm 83. And what we see from the other passages in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and these other ones, Obadiah, is you see that Israel extends its borders into Lebanon, into Syria, into Jordan, into Saudi Arabia, and the Sinai Peninsula. And, and in effect, basically, when you read those passages, utterly destroys all neighboring countries. I mean, there's a remnant left of Jordan. There's a remnant left in Syria. Um, there are no more Edomites, that's for sure. That's, they're completely wiped off the planet. And, and when you look at that devastating consequences, I, that's why I would put Damascus in that destruction um, as a retaliation of the all Arab invasion of Psalm 83. I could be wrong, but that's where I see the best place for it. Yeah, because there's been some action in Damascus recently. I think two or three weeks ago, uh, Israel did a strike on Damascus. So um, you think that the neighboring countries are going to actually... So I'm, I'm curious, and, and I might expound on this question. Yeah. Uh, but before I do, it's in 17, uh, Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. It says, the burden against Damascus. I'm going to read just verse 1. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. You guys can keep reading that um, if you would like, even do some, some Bible study. I would highly encourage it. I do yeah. see a distinction in the Gog and Magog War and the destruction of, of Damascus. But um, I know Bill Salas wrote a book. 
on the yeah, Psalm 83 war. Mm -hmm. um, does he believe, and I'm curious if you guys both have the same view when it comes to that or, or it's a, he thinks it's a totally separate thing. Well, no, I, I agree with Bill Salas and, you know, you can, anyone can get his book. It, it first was labeled Israelistine on yeah, then yeah. I, he, he turned, he termed it uh, Psalm 83. I agree with that. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum also agrees with that because he, Bill Salas actually, you know, gave uh, his interpretation of that to Fruchtenbaum and Fruchtenbaum married it with his document on um, the Arab states and prophecy. Okay. And commented on Bill Salas and said, you know, he was, he was accurate in that assent, uh, assessment. Right. So it, it is distinct and it's, it's for an entirely different reason other than what the reason is for Gog of Magog. Okay. And, and then when, when Fruchtenbaum pointed out uh, the aftermath, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to get the verses for you right now so I can, um, give this to you, to your sure. listeners so they can look at the aftermath of what happens. And uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. So the, I, the, the, the key passages about the aftermath is Isaiah 19, 16 through 25, Jeremiah 48, 1 through 47, Jeremiah 49, 1 through 2, uh, and Jeremiah 49, 6 through 20. Jeremiah 49, 28 through 39, Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14, Ezekiel 29, 1 through 16, Ezekiel 35, 6 through 9, Obadiah 1, verses 5 through 9, and Obadiah 1, 17 through 21. So when you look at those passages, it deals with the aftermath of what happens to the Arab states surrounding Israel. Right. And it didn't have what, what those passages say didn't happen in 1948, 67 or Yom Kippur. So it, I believe it remains to, to happen. So, so essentially we're seeing the setup for the Gog Magog war. It's uh, a Gog esque, as I've heard many yeah. of you guys say, right. But yes. as that's kind of setting up, um, I guess I'm curious what, and I, maybe none of us really know because no one really called 2020 either. Um, it just kind of caught us by surprise. But I'm curious what these guys must be planning something if there still has to be the Psalm 83 fulfillment before we have the Gog-Magog war, right? Because they're, they don't overlap. The Bible doesn't say that no. they overlap. One is very distinct from the other one. Yeah. So we still have the Psalm 83 war that has to happen with the surrounding nations and um, Isaiah 17.1, the destruction of Damascus happening. And I'm curious, what is going to light the fuse? Is there any thoughts? Does Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum or Bill Salas do... What is it that you think or anybody else thinks that might light that fuse? Because the, the world's attention right now, obviously, is in the, this whole Russian-Ukraine thing. Bible prophecy teachers are giving a, a lot of attention to that as well. But we can't ignore Israel because Israel is the centerpiece of Bible prophecy. Yeah. So what are your, again, I know this is a... It's conjecture. It's just opinion. But is there yeah. something you're thinking might kind of light the fuse there? Yeah, I think I think um, 
to understand Gog or Magog, you, there is a major setup that has to happen for that to, to transpire. So it's not going to happen even overnight right now. What you're seeing with Russia is perhaps the beginnings of, you know, what he's wanting to do, because eventually he will turn his sights on Israel. But right now he's not doing that. He's given some warning shots to Israel, no doubt about that. But Israel met with him uh, a couple of days ago. What are, no, last Saturday, Bennett went up there and talked for two hours with um, Russia. Believe it or not, Israel is working with Russia right now because Russia gives them the ability to have airspace over Syria to take out proxy groups that are ran by Iran, which is weird because Russia is in alliance with Iran. Right. So, you know, it's not, it's like one of these things you don't know who to trust. So Israel is cooperating with Russia and they, they were very slow to come out to condemn what Putin was doing in Ukraine. They finally did, but um, it was very slow because they, they, they get allowed airspace over Syria. Anyway, for, for God, God of Magog to go down, you've got to have a lot of pieces of the puzzle in place. And so we're still building towards that, no doubt about it. But with Psalm 83 is a little bit different because there's really only one thing that held that from, from happening, and it was the United States. The fact that the Biden administration is a soft administration that, that, that basically is not going to protect Israel. Um, a lot of that has incited um, you know, the Arabs to, to basically say, look, this is our chance. It, it, it incited Russia to say this is our chance, too, to invade the Ukraine because the United States is weak now with the administration. And so one of the linchpins that I thought always prevented the attack of Psalm 83 had been because the United States will pummel you if you go after Israel. But I don't think they're afraid now. I don't think they, they're afraid of Joe Biden. And so we might be in the window of that possibly happening. Again, it's all conjecture. But um, the big key was the United States has to be seen as weak and won't do anything in the Middle East. And we proved that through Afghanistan. Look what we did. We, pulled, we said on the whole national stage, we do not want to be in the Middle East anymore. And that's what leaving Afghanistan meant. And whoever pulled the strings for us to do that and leave $85 billion of a military equipment, someone was pretty powerful to, to tell Biden to get out of there and leave Americans behind and all kinds of uh, friendly nationalists that were helping us. So something's up in the Middle East where we're, we're taking a seat of non-intervention now. And so I think it, 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 that was the catalyst, I think. Yeah. So would you say that um, there are, there's a lot brewing. There's more than one cup of coffee brewing over there in the Middle <laughs> yes. East and in Europe. Yeah. Prophetically, still, prophetically speaking. Yeah. You have to see it that way. It's not one overarching thing. It's a multiplicity of cauldrons that are brewing and you have all these fronts. I mean, so whether you're looking at Russia flexing its muscles, but then you have the globalists flexing their muscles, or then you have Israel trying to defend themselves against Iran and going nuclear, or even like today, uh, Biden comes out and says uh, he's introducing a made an executive order to go to a digital currency. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's that. just it's everything. Everywhere I turn, it's something. So that's the thing about prophecy. It's not one thing. It's a multiplicity of these cauldrons that are ready to spill over. Okay, and then and how does that? Why, how does yeah. the, the birth pang uh, comparison play out? I mean, obviously, 
we could see that. But how does that play out with everything happening? Do you believe, obviously, that things are happening super, super fast? What What is your take on that? I know we got to move forward, but I really do yeah. want to get your take on that. You no, know, I, I think the birth pains are happening just as Messiah said. They are happening faster. Look what they're doing. I mean, within this year, I mean, executive order for digital currency. Okay, we're, we, it's very possible you and I are going to see a, a digital currency here in the near future. That I could never imagine uh, even two years ago or three yeah, years yeah. ago. But we're here and they're doing it. And so I think it, uh, things are speeding up and it's getting more intense as a birth pain. And, it, and the intensity is felt by the average person. Look at the gas prices. Look at the food prices. Yeah. That's how we know it's getting more intense. It's not just happening over in another region. It's happening right here with us. Yeah. So the crazy thing is, um, like, like you said, we feel it on multiple levels. I've, I've said before that if you're paying attention, I don't know if you would agree with this, you could really on a spiritual level, you could hear the hoofbeats of the, of the four horsemen of the apocalypse approaching and you know, uh, I'm more of a creative and I, I get these word, these pictures in my mind. And um, I could see these just big beastly horses as they're quickly approaching. And if you see how horses gallop, they make these really loud sounds, but they tear up the ground, yeah. you know, with intensity. And uh, that's exactly what I picture in my mind happening as, as that's getting close. And you just said digital currency. And again, I know we're still on one and I'm going to move away quick, but there's just so much because a digital currency can also mean um, case in point, what happened in 2020, you don't agree with us. We shut you down. You don't shop. You can't, you can't buy food. You can't go to the, you know, out. I I mean, you can't get gas, you name it. I know you mentioned in one of the uh, podcast we did. I, I think it was the second one. Um, I'm pretty sure you had mentioned MasterCard coming out with some type of gas card or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and basically it was, you know, MasterCard basically um, dictating that if you use their card, um, it was a digital type of currency thing, but they would dictate what you could buy. And that's where we see the digital currency going. It's not just going to, well, we're just going to move to a different currency. No, they will tell you what you can buy and sell. That's the scary part of it. And no one's understanding. And, uh, you know, you're going to, and then they can limit what you can spend based on your ESG scores, what they're going to use for your social credit. So if you're not as, as friendly to the planet, if you're, you're not a social justice warrior or whatever, they'll limit you. They'll penalize you. And that's what they do in China, but that's what's coming with the digital currency. It's just not a currency. It's a controlling aspect of every facet of your life. Man, it's happening so, so quick. And I would love to stay on the subject for a bit. We might come back to it. Um, But okay, so let's move on to question number two. And again, I'm I'm trying to move us because there are a couple of these that have, uh, one of these has three questions and we're not, I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, but um, Scott Lewis, I would imagine. Thanks for the question. Uh, I think you're in Cali. I'm not sure. Um, so question number two, this is from David Graham. He posted this November 8th, but again, it's still uh, apropos. Um, so let me see if I can, I'll ask the question, set it up just the way he did. He said, it seems at some point, that in order for these globalists to accomplish what they want to accomplish, 
They're going to have to disarm Americans like what was done in Australia in the 90s. For those of you that that don't know, Australians got all their guns taken away, right? I I believe so. Back in 90, I want to say 96, 95, 96, somewhere around there. Um, That's what they've been trying to do here too. But he says this, my question is with so many Americans armed to the teeth, especially with a record number of gun and ammo sales during the Obama years, how do you think that they would be able to accomplish that task? And he says this, this is his comment. I just don't see Americans giving up their guns as the Aussies did. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, good question. Um, and I don't think with what they're trying to do right now with the economy, that the people will have to give up their guns or ammo because they're basically with a digital currency, which leads into what we already discussed a little bit. They will be able to buy, control the buying and selling of ammo and weapons. And even already credit cards like Visa, MasterCard, American Express have already toyed with the idea that they are not going to allow you to purchase firearms or ammo using their cards. Well, look, if you go cashless and all you have is cards or digital currency, you won't be able to buy, buy ammo or anything. It'll all have to be black market stuff that you have. Now, of course, um, people are armed to the teeth in America. They, they are not going to eliminate the, the Second Amendment. They know they can't do that. So they're basically going to skirt around it and, and make so many regulations um, that you will not be able to comply. And the fact that um, they already have us on the Department of Homeland Security as, as anyone like, like us as Christians who believe in an eschatology and end times are already deemed a threat or a, a domestic terrorist already on Department of Homeland Security. So all they have to do is deem you a threat and they'll just shut you down economically. You know, and so this is what they have found a way to get around the gun situation. And, and they will do it. That's how they're going to effectively eliminate guns, even without going to your house and taking them. You just won't be able to use them. So that's where I think that's where it's going. And the same thing with cars and vehicles. They want to eliminate all gas-powered motors, and so they're going to force us all to electric cars and junk like that. And so when they can control the economy in a digital way, it's game over. It's game over on anything, anything you want to buy. And I think that's what you have to understand as far as guns are concerned. They figured it out already. So it really just kind of ties into what we were talking about, digital currency, control, not that, you know, obviously, uh, I know Pete Booty Judge, uh, I think a couple of days ago, two, three days ago, said, well, every American should buy an electric car, yeah, uh, you know, because yeah. they're so cheap and everything. But, right. you know, and I was just thinking uh, to myself, if you have an electric car, how hard would it be to hack that system and shut your car down or track you wherever you're going? You know what yeah. I mean? Or if yeah. pe- you they want to shut people down all in the name of, you know, this whole uh global warming climate change yeah uh well you know what uh we need people to stay home you can't go anywhere so guess what uh we're gonna shut down all of the charging stations everywhere they're not gonna work anymore so right you you really can't go anywhere so control mass mass control global control is at the doorstep would you agree with that yeah they have figured out now with the technology how to shut everything all the freedoms down and that's how they're going to do it through technology. They don't have to pass laws anymore. They don't. They don't have to 
convince anybody. They're just going to do it. And the technology allows them to do it. And by the way, the companies are all on board. And uh, whether it's, you know, Dick Sporting Goods or, or mm. Costco's, think about what Dick Sporting Goods did. Dick Sporting Goods eliminated all of their ammo and gun sales. Why? Because they, they, they went along with the woke narrative of guns are evil and we're going to eliminate guns. So, so all they have to do is convince the manufacturers don't do this. And look what happened to, uh, I think it was Remington. Remington got sued um, <laughs> by, I think it was the, the people of Sandy Hook or something like that, the, the parents of Sandy Hook. And they, the parents won. And basically what the, the lawsuit was is that Remington, they sued Remington because of their ads encouraged, uh, you know, youth to get a gun to be a man or something like that. And the court sided with the parent, which sent shockwaves to all gun manufacturers. The fact that there's a mass shooting, we'll come after you too. We'll eliminate you. And it was, it was big bucks. And I can't remember the figure. It was like $76 million or something like that. It was a big lawsuit and they lost. And so every gun manufacturer walked away saying, okay, we can all be sued for what someone else does with our guns. That's what basically it set a precedent for. So very scary times in the fact that, that um, they're, they're, their main target is gun manufacturers and they can shut them down. You know, if they need loans from a bank, a loan could say, uh, a bank could say, no, your ESG score is bad because you sell guns. We're not going to give you a loan. And that's basically what they're going to do to gun manufacturers, going to put them out of business, basically. That's insane. I mean, it's happening. Everything's happening so quickly, like we were just mentioning, right? Do you turn to the right? There's this happening. You turn to the left. There's this happening. There's, you know, all this other. Uh, it, it's hard to keep track, even <laughs> for those that are, especially, you know, guys like you, guys like Billy Crone, Eric Barger, Tom Hughes. Um, I just mentioned Pete Garcia. I mean, yeah. to keep up with everything happening. It's insane. You know, uh, two nights ago, uh, Monday night, we usually watch Bible prophecy or we watch uh, a pastor just kind of unwind. And my wife said, Hey, you know, who do you want to watch? I said, I don't want to watch anybody. Yeah. I I don't blame you. I want to totally unplug. I said, I just need to decompress. I said, because sometimes it's just too overwhelming. It is what's happening. Right. So, um, for the believer it's, yeah, we have that hope, but we're still here. You know what I mean? And until the Lord doesn't call us, we got to, we got to, we're in the dance, right? Yeah, we are. We're in the fight. And, we're, and that's definitely, the, the thing. We, we, it's a heavy burden. There's no doubt about it. And I understand the burden that you have because sometimes I have to unplug too, because you get evil fatigue, I call it. Yeah, that's um, a good way of putting it. You know, I get just enough of it. I'm tired of seeing it and tired of hearing it. And so I do unplug and, yeah. and I have to get my brain reset because, um, you know, our job is to warn, but at the same time, we're human and it does fatigue us to, to keep delving into a corpse, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So we're going to kind of shift gears now uh, a bit with this question. Uh, the gal that sent this, her name's Heather Edwards. She's from Australia. So it's a good question, and it has to do with the position of pre-trib, post-trib, right, of uh, that kind of doctrine. So she asks, hey, could you cover the doctrine of partial rapture? I know there's a guy by the name of Marv Rosenthal who is a big proponent of this whole partial rapture theory. I think he's pushing it big time. But 
Why don't you, uh, if you don't mind expounding on that a bit, the partial rapture theory? Yeah, the partial rapture theory is unfortunately not good hermeneutics. And hermeneutics means just biblical interpretation. It's taking certain passages like, um, you know, for instance, you, you, if you take the passage about the, um, the Philadelphia church, and it says, uh, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And so it's that pa passage then is misinterpreted to say, oh, it's only the ones that persevere that will be raptured and the other Christians that don't persevere will be left behind. That's unfortunate because that's not what that passage means. That, that passage is a general promise to all believers and uh and the fact that if you're a believer, you will be raptured. But Rosenthal and, and some others, they end up taking that, and instead of a general promise, take that and take persevere as, oh, that's only if you do. Well, it's very, very much like Calvinism, because Calvinism believes in perseverance of the saints. And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't teach perseverance of the saints. It teaches eternal security. What do you think? What do you mean? What do you mean by perseverance of the saints? I want to clarify because I'm sure somebody's probably listening and doesn't know much about Calvinism, and they want to know what do the Calvinists believe when it comes to perseverance of the saints. So why don't you go ahead and clarify that real quick? Well, uh, and again, a lot of Calvinists have different opinions, but I'll just give you like some of the guys like John Piper, you know, uh, those types of guys that people look to. John MacArthur, they. Um, um, Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm losing a train of thought, but the, the idea here in Calvinism is that if you truly are saved, that you will continue to produce good works, never apostatize, um, never fall, and you will persevere to the end. And the way that you prove that you're saved is by your good works. Mm. That's why when John MacArthur was asked... Are you 100% sure you're going to heaven when you die? He said, I'm 98% sure. Because he didn't know if he was going to persevere to the end. Well, that's a problem. That's a theological blunder. That, that, yeah. that means you don't believe in the promise of God. That He says, if you believe in me, I will give you an everlasting life, which is unilateral. You can't lose your salvation. Okay, so in the Calvinist mindset, that they believe that if you don't continue to persevere in good works and you stop or you apostatize or you get carnal or you get worldly or something like that, then they, they do the quick thing and saying, well, you just never were saved. So the fact that you stopped persevering proves that you're not saved. Well, that's not true. The Bible says those who stop persevering lose rewards, not salvation. That it is possible. That's why there's so many warnings that believers can apostatize. They can get into false doctrine. Otherwise, I don't make, it doesn't make sense to give all the warnings about going into false doctrine. And so we believe that once you're saved, you have the everlasting life, but you can not compete according to the rules and beco become disqualified for the prize, which is rewards, not salvation. And so people shipwreck their faith. And they're still saved, but they shipwreck it. So when you start reading that kind of perseverance into that Revelation passage, then you're really combining Calvinism into your eschatology and saying, well, 
the saints that don't persevere, that are not doing good works and stuff. Well, here's my question. How do you know how much good works you have done? Because you end up in John MacArthur's problem of saying he's 98% sure. Many of the Puritans who were staunch Calvinists, even on their deathbed, weren't assured they were saved. That's, that's a wrong theology, obviously. But that theology gets into the text in Rosenthal's eschatology and says, well, if you're not persevering, you're not going to be raptured. Well, no, that's not what it means. That, it's a general promise that anyone's a believer will be raptured. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's actually infusing Calvinism into eschatology. That's the problem with that view. So, so there so, is no partial rapture. So let me ask you a question, kind of back up a bit. Um, what would you say to the statement, you can't lose your salvation, but you can walk away from your salvation, right? Uh, in the sense of when the Lord said, many are going to come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Did we not prophesy your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And I'm going to turn, say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Yes. So they're going to have some semblance of, of, of Christianity, of being a Christian. So maybe to you and I, we'd be totally duped. You know, brother X, Y, and Z, man, whoo, they are godly people. So what is your take on, you know, that, uh, like what I just mentioned? No, you yeah. can't lose your salvation, but you can definitely walk away from your salvation. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that, that, that category, there is the category of tares. And we, yes. we maintain that there's wheat and there's tears. They are fake believers. You have to maintain that category. And the fake believers are seen in what you just uh, referenced in Matthew 7. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that category. But here's what you have to have, understand. Calvinism only makes one category. Mm. They say, no, you're either saved or you're not. But they don't allow for what Paul allows with carnal believers, worldly believers, they don't allow for apostates. They don't allow for uh, immoral apostates, like in 1 Corinthians 5, where the guy was kicked out of the church, but he was still a believer. And so what you, or it doesn't allow for Laodicean believers or Sardis believers. Now, what I mean by that is when you look at the seven churches of Revelation, all those different churches have elements of obviously unbelief in them, but they also have believers who are called on to overcome certain things and and so what you start realizing is there's many categories of believers so so what you have to say is yes there is a reserve a category for false believers that are not real deal they're they're darnell they're terrorists then there's a category for carnal believers corinth church there's a category for worldly believers as Allah demas who forsook the, uh, the the apostle paul because he loved the world then there's a category for Sardis believers. They, they are um, saved, but their, their faith is dead. Dead faith doesn't mean they're not saved. Dead faith means that their faith is not producing anything in their life. They're saved, but there's nothing happening. That's James, by the way. And then there's the Laodicean believers who are absolutely saved, but they're useless. That's the idea of vomiting someone out of your mouth is... I can't use you for cold or hot. I can only vomit you because you are useless. So this is what the Bible is saying. You have to figure out what category people are in. So now back to Calvinism. When Calvinism describes Christians, they only describe one type of Christian, a saved one and an unsaved one. And therefore, there is no category 
for a believer who gets into false doctrine, they'll just say, well, he's never saved to begin with. Or there is no category of a believer that gets in raunch season of sin, like the guy in 1 Corinthians 5. They'll say, well, you know, uh, if you get into that bad of sin, you probably weren't saved to begin with. Whoa, time out, time out. You can't say that. That guy came back. David came back. And so at the end of the day, I hate to say it, Calvinism has its ugly tentacles even in eschatology. And it messes up the views of even the rapture because of that, where you get like this, a partial rapture view. So you have to allow for the other categories in soteriology. Otherwise, so when you say when someone walks away, okay, can someone walk away? Yeah, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they're apostate. And see, apostasy, what, what, is, what do you lose in apostasy? Well, according to Hebrews 6, you lose rewards. And that's why some at the Bema Seed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 will have all their works burned up and the smell of smoke will be on them because there's nothing to reward them for. They lost rewards. So the warnings in Hebrews, there's five warnings. The warnings in Hebrews, if you apostatize as a believer, you lose all rewards and even might physically die. So that's my, 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 my comeback to Calvinism in the fact that even if you wanted to walk away from yourself, you could, there's a lot of people that say they don't believe anymore. Okay, it's possible they never were saved, yeah, but I also going to reserve other categories for them as well because I've seen people walk away, I don't believe anymore, then they come back. Mm -hmm. so, what, so what happened during that season? Well, they went to apostasy and then they were, came back from it. So, so let, that's me push, let me push in a little bit. So uh, talk to us about the, the if there is a difference in the parable of the grapevine, right? Where mm -hmm. branch that doesn't produce fruit, I'm going to cut it off and it's going to get burned. What did, what was Christ referring to there? Well, the context there is discipleship. It's not, he's not talking about salvation at all. And so when you, which, what you see is the cut off and burned, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, hell. It's, it's a misnomer to relate that to hell. Anytime you see fire or burn, it has to do with judgment. And 1 Corinthians 3 makes it abundantly clear how fire will burn up our works. It's the same as what Jesus is saying in the, the parable of the, of the vine dresser. Those who are cut off means that they're cut off from reward, not salvation. It, it, the whole passage, if you read the whole passage, is about being a disciple. The only way, now look, look what he says, that you can produce fruit. He's talking about fruit bearing. Fruit bearing is a discipleship term, not a salvation term. And so since he's talking about fruit bearing, he's saying this is the only way you guys can bear fruit in discipleship. you got to abide in me. And what does abide mean? Abide is, is not a salvation term. It's a rabbinic term. Abiding means that you're yoked to his teachings and you obey his teachings. That's all it has to do with. It's, it's talking about full-blown discipleship. So if he's talking about discipleship, it cannot be a reference to hell. It has to be a reference to the judgment seat of Christ that their works are burned up if they don't produce fruit. And that's, that goes hand in hand with 1 Corinthians 3. Okay, so I have another follow-up question to them, and we'll, we'll get moving, right? Uh, again, because I, I would imagine that there's a lot of people that would, will hear our exchange, right? And so mm -hmm. if I think of a question that might come up to kind of fully answer it, Sure, I want to good. throw it out there. So, do it. 
so that we don't mislead because I want to make sure that you and I don't mislead anybody into believing, dude, I could live however I want to live. You know what I mean? I can go out and I can be promiscuous. I can go out and get wasted. Uh, at the end of the day, I'll still fall into one of those categories. So what are the dangers and implications of having that kind of mindset as we yeah. progress in our Christian walk? You know what I mean? Because there definitely are. You can't you can't go with that kind of mindset and, in you know, be spirit filled. And I, I know that term has been overused, but I say it very specifically because we are indwelt. We have the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So uh, what are some of the dangers of thinking that way? Um, and uh, what could that lead to? Okay, good. Good question. Because, yeah, so having eternal life is a promise by the Messiah, obviously. And so if you don't believe in eternal life, if you don't believe the Messiah's word, then you don't believe you have eternal security. So, but the idea is this is not giving people a license to sin. That's, that's primarily the reason why Calvinists threaten people, because they're afraid if you tell them that you have eternal life and they don't have to watch their behavior, then, then people are going to get licentious. And unfortunately, they're pounding people over the head with the wrong passages. Here's what happens. If a believer decides in his attitude to be carnal or worldly, Here's what the scripture warns about. Not only will you lose rewards in the next life, but your life will be shortened. That's the whole point of the warnings in, in Hebrews chapter, or sorry, the five warnings in Hebrews. It says, look, if you think you're, you're going to get away with anything by what you're doing, just remember Kadesh Barnea. That, that group apostatized, and if you read Numbers 13 and 14, they were forgiven for not going to the promised land. But the penalty was, you will all die in the desert. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, makes that point and says, look, how much more will your, your penalty be if you do the same thing? If you go back into Judaism and, and, and to, to escape persecution, and you deny the Lord in this regard, you're going to physically die. So one of the things people have to understand is, if they have this attitude, they're going to die. That's what James is warning about. James chapter 1 and James chapter 5 both talk about a believer dying prematurely because of their sin. Because here's the thing. God will not be mocked. If a believer engages in sin, he will introduce the death principle in him because the wages of sin is death. And he will die a premature death. And also, he will be disciplined by the Lord. And um, Hebrews chapter 12 makes that point. So... The idea is that's why there's so many warnings in Scripture, but the warnings are never challenging the person's salvation. The warnings are challenging. He'll kill you. He'll physically take your life if you keep messing around like that. And that's enough that should shake people to realize that's why you have to be obedient and you just can't have a license to sin. That's called the hyper grace movement. Yeah. Could I add something in there and then you can correct me if I'm totally off base? Sure. I, I kind of liken it, or not kind of, I liken it very much because in Scripture, uh, our relationship with Christ is tied to a marriage picture, a marriage image. Yeah. Uh, you know, marriage isn't perfect. My marriage isn't perfect. You know what I mean? I'm a sinner. My wife's a sinner. And so when you sure. get two sinners together, and um, and what I mean by that, though, is Though my uh, my attitude a lot of times can stink, my reactions, you know, and I have to say, hey, babe, you know what? I'm sorry for the way I acted or for what I said. 
because I love my wife, there are things that I'm going to make sure that I stay away from. Does that make me perfect? It doesn't make me a perfect man at all. I'm still going to be, you know, I'm still going to fall short. Uh, the knight in shining armor is definitely going to fall off his horse from time to time. And I got a sure. lot of kinks in my armor. You know what I mean? Yeah. But at the end of the day, I love my wife. I love my family and I'm not going to do something that's going to jeopardize that or jeopardize that relationship that I have with them. And so the way I see it is for us that love the Lord, our imp that should be our impetus, right? Because yeah. we love him to, to lead a life pleasing to Christ. And scripture is replete with, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. David said, I love your statutes more than one time. You know what I mean? So, uh, there's, there's a fine line we have to, we have to walk to make sure we don't allow the enemy a foothold and then lead us down the wrong path. And when you get led down the wrong path, you come up with these crazy theories like partial rapture and a bunch yeah. of other things. And yeah. And, and that, that's, that's somebody, when you look at the partial rapture view and you see the Calvinism leaking into it, that's somebody that has a presupposition about what they believe about salvation rather than uh, submitting to the authority of the word of God. And look what it does. It not only screws up their soteriology, but it screws up their eschatology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that's how people get led astray. It sounds good because you, you look at it at the surface and you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, only, only mature believers are, are going to be taken. Well, wait a second. Um, <laughs> where did you get that from? David David Hawking likens it to a, per, a Protestant purgatory. I always say that because I just think it is so hilarious. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it is. It's true. That's that's kind of it's a good way, tongue in cheek, the way to say it. But that's yeah, right. They're yeah. they're promoting a, a Protestant purgatory. Yep, it totally. And is. so okay. they're going to be refined in the fire and all this other stuff. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You know what? Uh, for those of you that that don't know the Refiner's Fire, go do research scripturally on the Refiner's Fire. Yeah. There was a song. And I say this in ignorance, okay? There was a worship song. And so everybody, you really should read the lyrics of worship songs that you sing. But there was a song years and years ago, probably when you and I were in college. Uh, it was called Refiner's Fire. And one of the parts was My Heart's One Desire. Mm. When you come to know what the Refiner's Fire is, I don't sing that anymore. I haven't sang that song forever because <laughs> I, I don't want the Refiner's Fire. I actually, I, you know what? I'm always asking the Lord, please. I'm wimpy that way. Would you please be very, very gentle yeah, right. and reproof? Because <laughs> I do not want. And if you can go read the consequences when David, uh, when David not only sinned with Bathsheba, but he also sinned in taking the census. I'll let you guys go do the research on that and yeah. see uh, what happened there. Anyways, yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Yeah. Uh, we, we spent enough time on question number three, Heather, I hope that that answered your question. I know we kind of rabbit trailed a bit, but, uh, there's a whole lot, um, a lot more to it, but anyways, I hope that helped. Uh, question number four, this comes from a gentleman that I kind of interacted a bit with via email. His name's Gustavo Cordova and he's from Venezuela. Uh, pray for the people of Venezuela. We don't hear much about it, but I do. Uh, I did hear um, recently, and I don't know, you might have, uh, Brandon, that Biden and uh, Maduro now have 
they've been talking and I don't know what's going on behind the scenes there. I don't like it one bit, but pray for the people of Venezuela. Um, keep them in your prayers because that situation never got any better. So he had three questions. I'm going to just start with one. We'll get to number five and number six. If we have time, we'll come back to his other two questions. I don't know if we will. So, um, you know what, this one actually, uh, I think we just answered this. Uh, you can tell me if we did. He said, is it possible to reject Jesus? Slide back into not believing once saved. Some say, no, no, he really never believed. Well, how to handle Paul's worries about it in Hebrews when he warned about drifting into unbelief. How do you drift into unbelief if you never believed? I think we answered that. We answered that. It, it, he's, it, the question he's, he's tracking and that answer is, well, they never believed is a Calvinist answer to that. Right. And the Calvinists are wrong. So Gustavo is totally right. How do you drift in unbelief if you never believed it? That's exactly my question. Yeah. And it's the idea that, yes, and uh, a believer can drift away. That's the whole point of Hebrews. But like we talked about, if you do drift away, the penalty is you'll get disciplined and ultimately your life will be shortened by God himself. So Gustavo's okay. on the right track. Yeah, Gustavo, you're on the right track. So because we didn't take any time, let's go to Gustavo's first question which has to do with, I'm sure, a subject that many either don't know about. And I know this is a controversial subject. Uh, Chuck Missler talked a lot about the Nephilim blood. He talked about the Nephilim a lot. There's a guy by the name of Ellie Marzulli who spends, do you know Ellie Marzulli? He yeah, uh, does a lot of work with um, uh, prophecy watchers. And he used to do a lot of work with um, prophecy in the news, which was J.R. Church's uh, ministry. Nonetheless, uh, no matter where you stand on this, I'm going to ask Gustavo's question. And okay. he said, we know from scripture that Joshua and Israel failed to wipe out the complete populations ordered by God. Uh, I think he's probably referring to the Amalekites. Oh, no, Joshua and Israel, that the Amalekites will solve. Um, what is your view on these bloodlines still existing today with their DNA subsequently weakened by racial mixing? Some scholars propose that they might escape to current Europe, Etruscan. I'm not sure. I don't follow that bloodline, so I can't attest to what that is. Any possibility that Jesus was referring to that when referred to the Pharisees as generation of vipers slash offspring of vipers? And he has another question, association with wheat and tares. Is it possible that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was related to this aspect? It's a pretty complicated question because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think what Gustavo is trying to do, what his question is, is there still Nephilim blood left on earth today when it should have been wiped out centuries ago? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's where he's getting at. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's the question. Yeah, so go ahead and I'll let you answer. I have my opinion about that scripturally, but go ahead. I'll let you go ahead and take this one. Okay. Well, there's debate on that. I personally don't believe there is any Nephilim blood. I believe in a Nephilim situation that happened in Genesis 6, that these are hybrids. And now the disembodied spirits of these creatures of Nephilim are now called demons. There's a difference between demons and fallen angels, in my opinion. Um, demons always want to possess a body since they had a body before, and they're always afraid of water. Uh, fallen angels don't seek to possess bodies, nor are they afraid of water. Um, but there is a final Nephilim coming, and I believe it's the Antichrist. I believe the clues we have from 
Revelation 17, Genesis 3.15 give us enough clues that one final Nephilim is coming called the Antichrist. So I do not believe that there are Nephilim blood in, uh, in, uh, mixed into human DNA because that person would cease to be human. Okay. And I know that people sometimes make theories that certain people in the world are not human. Okay. But I don't know how that does with weakening that it's weakened by racial mixing. I think that's an, I, I don't, I'm not following that. Um, um, I, I don't think that racial mixing did anything with bloodlines because I don't believe a bloodline exists. Um, I don't know anything about the Etruscan bloodline, like Pablo said, I, I've never even heard of that. Um, and I do not believe Jesus was referring to the Pharisees as somehow offspring biologically of vipers. I, I believe he was using a metaphor right. uh, in that passage. And wheat and tares, uh, the plants on, in, in, as, I, as I interpret the, the, the wheat and tare parable properly, the tares are fake believers. They're not real. They look they, they look the same as a believer, but at the harvest time, they're a, you are able to tell the difference between a wheat and tare because a wheat turns golden and a tare turns grayish black. Yeah, and I think a wheat bows down, bows straight up. Tares, yeah, absolutely, they stand straight up. So the only time you can tell the difference between a wheat and tare is at the harvest time, which we're in. I think we can start seeing that. Yeah. Um, sin of God, Solomon and Gomorrah related the aspect of going after strange flesh. Well, they did, but the strange flesh they went after was homosexuality. Mm -hmm. But Jude relates it to what the fallen angels did in Genesis 6 um, of leaving their former estate and going after strange flesh, which was human flesh, female human flesh. And, and so um, that's how Jude equates the two as going after strange flesh. It's not strange flesh at flesh is creating nephilim in sodom and gomorrah it is just homosexuality okay i'm gonna have fun with this one okay go for it <laughs> a lot there he's got I, you know what i don't i'm gonna try to keep the worms as many worms in the can as we possibly can right. but i think we just did open up a can of worms we don't have time to collect all the worms that might have gotten away but okay so uh so we understand demons versus fallen angels correct and there's a fear of water and there's some that do not. So I'm sure that when people hear this, they're going to go, what? Yeah. What is he talking about? So let's yeah. back up a little bit. And why don't you unpack that for us? The difference between a demon versus a fallen angel. And also, and maybe I'll have to remind you, but also how did fallen angels, right? Because it says they went into the, the daughters of men, correct? I yeah. think that's it, it. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I believe that's a, euph a, a euphemism for sex. Am I, yes, am I correct? Okay, totally. so, so go ahead and tell us how the offspring of them, which said they created giants, the giants of old, correct? Some think that those are scholars, right? Very smart. I've heard that argument too, but I'll let you unpack all of that. And then we'll see where we're at. Go ahead. Well, the, the, the scriptures it just okay our, our line of reasonings comes from the scriptures so you just follow what it says now if you follow what it says and you take the scriptures literally not in a wooden literal sense but literally what it's saying is that fallen angels left their estate and cohabitated uh, married women uh, physically and physically had sex with them because all angel all all angels and including fallen angels are all male 
You never see any female angels at, at all. That came from the Renaissance, um, not from the Bible. And so they're all males. And that's why there's a one directional uh, relationship in Genesis 6 where sons of God. Go okay. ahead. Hold on. Hold on. Because I've got to interject here because I guarantee you there's someone wondering the same thing. So I'm sorry if I interrupted you. You're fine. There's a lot how, here. How, okay. How does a spirit being, a fallen angel, correct? Because angels are spirits, spirit beings. Am I correct? How does right. a spirit being have now? Okay. Not how, okay. Cause I don't want to get into that, but a spirit being versus and, and get together, come into a physical being is, is a matter of possession. How does that? Okay. So explain that to us, please. Okay. So what we see from scripture, and again, we're deriving our understanding from the deductions we see with fallen angels. What we understand from fallen angels is that they do have the ability to materialize into a physical body. When we see uh, angels in the Bible, they will always appear physically and they can eat. And remember with the, the Lord appearing to Abraham, he had two angels and they ate. They were physical in nature. So what we understand that in their nature, yes, they are spirit creatures but they can manifest physically in the physical space-time continuum and can manifest bodies and can manifest even working parts. And so with that being said, we have precedent to say they can physically manifest. Okay. And they do. Okay. So when you go to Genesis six, you have to have that background of what angels can do because this, the same is true. Even if it's a fallen angel, it still can manifest physically. And apparently manifest physically to produce sperm to impregnate women. Now, <clears throat> it seems out of whack, but look, in the ancient world, and it, even in the early church, this was the acceptable view because, um, you know, no one discounted the supernatural abilities of angels and that they had this kind of ability to physically manifest and do certain things in the physical world, like impregnate a woman. This is why when you go to uh, Corinth, Corinth and Paul is saying women need to have their head covered and then he'll say because of the angels. No one understands what he's talking about unless you understand Genesis six. And so what was happening, even in the Middle Ages, the, and I'm not a fan of the Catholic Church, I, I hate the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church even had a doctrine of the incubi and secubi, where people were being uh, physically raped by angels or uh, fallen angels. And it, it's, it still happens today. Even someone like Keisha, a singer, a rapper girl, uh, says that she has sex with uh, a fallen angel and other, other people in Hollywood and stuff say similar things. I've had people report to me that they, they have been raped by uh, an, a fallen angel or even a demon. So the occurrence not only is backed up in scripture, but it's backed up in practical experience of people I've dealt with in the occult and that this phenomenon goes on. Now they're not impregnated, but they are having sex with a fallen angel. And so what is the difference? Fallen angel versus a demon. Okay. So, so then the fallen angels then can materialize and they had offspring. Now, the reason they were doing this is destroy the line of the Messiah because Messiah, according to Genesis 3.15, has to be 100% human mm -hmm. in order to redeem humans. And so Satan's strategy in this was to destroy the DNA. That's why when you go down in Genesis 6 and you look at Noah, it says he was perfect in his generations. It's not talking about generations of a lineal line. It's talking about his DNA. 
his structure was perfect as far as it was untampered. It wasn't diluted. And what was happening prior to the flood, and this is why the main thrust of the flood was, is because very few humans existed because everything was tampered and the DNA structure was messed up in a lot of people. In fact, the majority of people on the planet. And that's why when you get back into Canaan, when this eruption happens again, um, this is why God will pronounce a harem on the giant clans, which is different than the other clans of him driving them out. Because in the, in the harem, it means I want women, children, and the animals killed, and I want everything burned. And that he'll do that to the giant clans, like the Rephaim, the Anakim, because everything about their DNA, even the animals included, are, are not real. They're tampered with. They're hybrids. So when we see that, that fallen angels can do this and create monstrosity, they create a Nephilim. Now, some of the Nephilim were giants. Some of them are not. Some of them are superhuman. Uh, you know, this is where we get the Greek myths and the myths of the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Chinese, the Jap Japanese. In every ancient culture, they have these hybrids. Anyway, so these hybrids were Nephilim. They were on the earth at that time. And um, this is the monstrosities they created. And so when they perished in the flood, what happened was there, there's no salvation for Nephilim. And, and so what ended up happening is they, they lost their bodies, but their soul stayed on the earth. Um, and then we look at scripture and we see that there's a difference between demons and fallen angels. Fallen angels inhabit the second abode, which is above planet earth. That's where Satan's realm is. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so fallen angels encompass, encompass that souls of the Nephilim, which we call demons now, encompass the earth and even can go into Sheol as well. So they're bound by this planet. So this is why we call it demon possession, because demons are always wanting to possess either humans or animals. And they seek out dry places, according to the Messiah. Fallen angels don't. We see fallen angels appearing on our radar and our Navy pilots pick them up. And what are they doing? They're in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, going in and out of water all the time or hovering above ocean. So they have no problem with water. Demons do not like water because that's the very thing that killed them. And so when Jesus exercised the demons from the guy at the Gadarenes, he sent them into the pigs, but they went where? Into the water. And so what we see from scripture, again, this is more deduction rather than I can read a passage about this. It's deduction. When you put the whole package together, there is a distinction between demons and fallen angels. And that distinction is made because of demons come from Nephilim and fallen angels um, are fallen angels. They don't need to possess. Okay, so. Through deduction, that's where we come out with this. And again, again, you don't want to be dogmatic, but this is this taking deduction saying, wait, I see a difference between what fallen angels do and what demons do and understanding that. Okay, now, personal experience. Have I seen this in my personal experience in dealing with people that are involved in the occult? Yes, I have. And they tell me the same thing. They have heard me make the distinction that I believe scripture is trying to say. And so I've had people that have been involved in the occult tell me 
you're absolutely right. That's if that's what the Bible teaches, that was my experience. So I've had people contact me and say, I was um, dealing with a fallen Nephilim that was a demon and his father was a fallen angel and he stayed very close to his father. But the information I collected from this guy, from this being that was trying to possess her was that he was a fallen Nephilim and, and, and he was birthed by some fallen angel and, and they, these two stuck together in the spiritual realm. But eventually this, even this Nephilim tried to rape this girl and she withheld him. But this was before her days become, before coming to Christ and, and whatnot. And so when I talk to people in the occult, they say, they, they tell me similar stories of demon possession, but they know the demon was not a fallen angel, that it came from a, 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 a Nephilim. So I'm not saying I base my argument on that, but when I, I, I deduct from the Bible and then I hear people in the occult tell me that something's up here. So that's a long story short, and that's probably more than what your readers want to hear, but that's why even a guy like Michael Heiser will make the same uh, deduction in that there's, there seems to be two different creatures here. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually mentioned Dr. Michael Heiser. We don't have time for the second question. And no, it was, it, no, it was fantastic. What uh, a great way of breaking that down. I'm sure everybody's like jaw dropping because yeah, I, you know what, even I never really uh, thought of it that, that deep. Now I know, and I want to make sure that I say this, um, there is definitely a correlation between sexual intercourse, drug use, and demon possession yes. and oppression. That's right. It is. So, They're so, connected. Yes, they are very, very connected. And it's for a very specific reason. The Lord said the two shall become one flesh. And so uh, we don't have time to get into the implications of that, uh, which I believe also tie into what you and I just talked about walking uh, away from or falling into one of the categories of what kind of Christian you are. So um, yeah. anyways, I know we have to move on. I remembered my question that I had for you. If we have time, and it's something we covered in the very, very first podcast we did, I'll mention the question. If we have time, we'll get to it. But I okay. want to, with everything happening nowadays, and so many uh, um, seminaries just going the way of wokeism. Uh, I wanted to to tell you and, and ask you again, just for you to repeat yourself. Augustinianism found its way and seeped its way. Also, you mentioned the German school of thought seeped its way into our present day seminaries, yes. which affected the way that they taught, right? The With the inerrancy of scripture and questioning scripture and all of that. So if we get to it, Okay. I want you to address that really quick. And the only reason why is because I believe that has a lot to do with the current condition of how the Bible has been taught throughout the, you know, the last 10 or 20 decades. So if we have it sure. that in the back okay. of your mind, if we can get to it. Great. Gustavo, I hope that that helped you. I'm going to say this in Spanish. Eh, Gustavo, un gusto conocerlo. Espero que la, la pregunta y la respuesta le haya ministrado usted y sea una bendición. Que Dios lo bendiga. Cuídese. All right. So, um, moving on. Question number five. So, 
This is from a gentleman by the name of Ryan Leposky. I hope I said that right. If I butchered it, sorry. Um, you are from Minnesota, eh? So uh, I'm not making fun. It's just, it's a hard accent to imitate. So here's Ryan's question. He said, um, when you do the Q&A with Brandon on your next episode, sorry, this is months afterwards, would be curious what you guys think uh, are on, let me read that again, would be curious what your guys' thoughts are on when those in the millennial kingdom, this is a good question, when those in the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies who are believers, these are people that have survived the tribulation, okay, I'm clarifying, and they go on to populate during the millennial kingdom. They do not have a, uh, they do not have the perfected bodies like those that went up in the rapture or those right. that have passed on before. Okay. So I want to make that distinction. He's talking about people that have survived the tribulation and have gone on in physical bodies like we have right now to populate the millennium, the millennial kingdom. True. How to, he says, well, how to handle, I'm sorry, back up. Uh, will they receive glorified bodies at some point? Or will they go on living forever in the eternal order in non-glorified bodies? I'll let you go ahead and take that away. Great question. I had that 20-something 20, 20 years ago when I was a new believer because I, I was perplexed by that too. Here's what I have found out through all the research after 30 years of being in eschatology. Um, here's what the answer is. The Bible talks about two resurrections, the resurrection of the damned and the resurrection of the righteous. And what we see is there, there are phases in the, the first resurrection of the righteous. There are phases, Messiah, the rapture, um, and then you have the two witnesses that are raptured. Then you have Israel and the tribulation saints. Okay, So the, the, when Israel is resurrected and the tribulation saints are resurrected after the second coming, that is the last of the righteous resurrection, the first resurrection. The second resurrection is the category of the resurrection of the damned. And that will happen, obviously, at, um, before the great white throne judgment, as everyone who is unsaved is, is judged at that, at, at that time. And then they're, them with their bodies, not glorified bodies, but a body that can burn forever in the lake of fire, will be cast in the lake of fire. So, ah, so here's, the, here's where we get into the, the issue. Since the first resurrection category ends with the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints after the second coming, then there is no resurrection at the end of the millennium. Ah, okay. So then what does that imply? It implies that the end of the millennium, those believers who are mortal will be translated into a glorified body. There's, they're not going to be resurrected because here's the thing. You come to faith during millennium, you live for the whole thousand years. According to Isaiah 65, it is only the unbelievers that die at the age of 100. And so if you come to faith, anybody comes to faith, you will live a thousand years and then be translated at the end uh, at that point in time and then be given a glorified body. Because the glorified body is part of the package deal of the new covenant. So every believer gets a glorified body. That's part of the package deal. So they cannot go into eternity without a glorified body. So because of the new covenant and because of the resurrection phase, those two 
cause a deduction to say they're translated at the end. Nice. And so uh, I also want to throw in there and correct me again, if I'm off base here at the end of the millennium, the Satan is going to be loosed for a short while, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. So <laughs> we don't know what that time frame is, but there are still going to be physical uh, people with physical bodies, correct? During that time there, I mean, there has to be because yes. uh, Satan is going to lead many astray. Right. So that uh, the trans, the, when, when you get the, their glorified bodies, those that have come through the millennium, those are people that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and savior. Um, is there, is there a distinction be, between those that get their glorified bodies up to that point and then go on those that do not know Jesus Christ and go on to uh, inhabit that short time, which we don't know uh, how long that is, or do the glorified bodies come after the time where Satan is bound and destroyed? So clarify that for me, that, that short sure. period. So that short period of time where Satan is loosed at the end, um, that will be before believers are, sorry, mortal believers from the tribulation and the millennium who are born in there, they still will not be glorified at that point. They will only be glorified once uh, the millennium is over. So since that last period of time encompasses the, the end of the millennium, they don't have their mortal body, sorry, their glorified bodies at this point. But um, once that's over and Satan is just, uh, is taken captive, thrown into the lake of fire, then they receive their, their glorified bodies. But also remember this, since unbelievers are allowed to live 100 years, it will be the 10th generation that rebels against the Lord because the other previous generations would have already died because of their unbelief. You get to live 100 years old. That's your probationary period. If you don't come to faith in Messiah, you die at 100. So the rebellion is happening with the 10th generation at the end of the millennium. So, so. It, it, it encompasses the millennium, that short period. Yes, it does. Satan is loosed is not like, okay, thousand years are over. And then we got like bonus time. This is yeah, no, there's okay. no interval. Okay, cool. Okay. So I hope that answered your question. I know we kind of cut it short, but uh, I, I believe that we were able to cover what you, you asked. Now this next and last question, cause I know we're running out of time. We we've <laughs> definitely gone over. Um, and I would like to just quickly get to this whole Augustinianism and German school of thought quickly. Okay. So Jim McCauley posted this March 6th, just a couple days ago today, three days ago. Uh, this was via YouTube. Um, I'm going to ask the question, and then I want to say something real quick. He prefaced his question like this. A covenant in biblical terms is an instrument that acts like a legal contract, a promissory note, etc. A, quote, breach of contract forfeits all details, including all of Israel's eternal blessings, as Jesus said that the kingdom of God will be taken from you, meaning Israel, and given to another nation that will bring forth the truth. Now, I know we're walking in very dangerous territory here. Um, so that's why I want to say something. Correct me if I'm wrong. All biblical covenants are conditional regardless of dispensation. So his question is, from a biblical perspective, is it possible for the word gift to be treated the same way? Does the word gift come with contingencies. I think there's two things here that we need to address. Number one, 
So Jim, you, you set the question up, but you talked about covenant. Uh, and I want to make sure before we move on to your question, it sounds like to me, we're talking about replacement theology. It sounds uh, like it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's called replacement theology, um, dominion theology. Uh, I'll let you go ahead, address that because I want to be very, very crystal clear where Brandon and I stand when it comes to the eternal covenant. Okay. Uh, that Christ, that God made with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, there are two types of covenants in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one is an unilateral, unconditional covenant. The other second covenant is a conditional, multilateral covenant. Now, let me explain. There are eight covenants in the Bible that you have to be aware of. Um, and the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral, unconditional covenant where God keeps the terms regardless of the participant. That's a unilateral covenant. Um, the land covenant is a unilateral covenant. The Davidic covenant is a unilateral covenant. And the new covenant is a unilateral covenant. So, so Jim, in those covenants, what God is saying is, look, I'm going to make a deal with you. And I'm going to keep all the sides of the, the bargain, regardless of your behavior. I'm going to do this. And that's what we call unilateral covenant. Now, here's the thing. Israel is under all of those covenants, Abrahamic, New, Davidic, and land. Now, the thing they haven't come under yet, well, some Jews have, but the nation as a whole hasn't come under the new covenant. Uh, the Jews have believed the Messiah are now under that, that unilateral covenant of the new covenant. The new, the new covenant is unilateral. So once you're in the covenant, you can never take yourself out, nor can anyone take you out. And so there's no breach of contracts in unilateral covenants. So when you talk about Israel and the land, if Israel disobeys, the Abrahamic covenant assures them they're always entitled to the land. Okay, so here's where the confusion comes. Under the Mosaic covenant, which is a conditional covenant and a multilateral, the Mosaic covenant was conditioned that they stay in the land if they obey. But if they disobey, they will get kicked out of the land temporarily. And so that's why Israel was taken to Babylon and why the Assyrian invasion happened, because they had broke a multilateral conditional covenant. But God, because of his unilateral covenant with the land, the Abrahamic and, and Davidic, always would bring Israel back. And in 1948, the reason they, he brought them back was because of the Abrahamic knew a land and Davidic. So sometimes it's confusing when you mix up the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant. And that's what you got to be real careful about, because although Israel can be punished and disciplined, they can never lose the promises made to them because of the unilateral covenant. So um, they're not, it depends on what covenant you're dealing with. Some covenants are conditional, like the Mosaic and uh, 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 the Adamic um, was conditional. And the idea was if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, you will be kicked out. And it was conditional. So they got kicked out. Um, but, the, but the other ones are not. Right, right. And so, um, and in regards, uh, Jim, to your second question about gifts, uh, the word gift being treated the same way, 
I don't think that you were specific and you didn't give us any uh, passages what you meant by gift. Uh, so I'm not sure how to answer the question with a little bit of background on that. Does the word gift come with contingencies? I don't know what you think, Brandon. It's well, maybe he's referring to salvation when it refers to salvation being a free gift. But um, that doesn't that terminology you have to understand is is telling you that from God's perspective, he did all the work. And you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is receive it. So the best metaphor that Paul could come up with is gift for that exchange, because it's an exchange that you get something without doing anything. And so that's the best way to codify that. But what you're really receiving is a covenant and all the work's been done for you. And all you have to do to enter into that covenant is believe and everything's given to you. So the, the best word to use for that is gift. Yeah, absolutely. Hope, uh, Jim, I hope that answered your question as Brandon was talking about the land covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, you know, I got this word picture in my mind. There's this gigantic mansion and you're the heir to that mansion. There's specific contingencies in, let's say, a, um, a legal document that says as the heir, you can stay in this house. This belongs to you as long as X, Y, and Z, right? Now, if you, if you do not, the house is still yours. The property is still yours, but we're going to have to, you're going to have to leave and then other people can come in and live there. And once, if you fulfill these contingencies, then you can come back in because the house is still yours. The property is still yours. That's just kind of a word picture I got in my mind because Israel was during the diaspora, they were dispersed. Uh, but then the Lord is still regathering them in the Aliyah. They're still coming back to the land. Now, when they came back to the land, um, I believe Mark Twain said it was land full of swamps and just, you know, horrible, unlivable. Yeah. And I kind of thought, you know, tenants can wreck a house too, but you come back in, you rebuild the house by God's grace. They rebuilt that land. It is, it is amazing. I've never been there. I know I will go someday, whether now or later. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, um, I'm, I'm glad we, okay. So we got through all the questions. If you think <laughs> that in one or two minutes, okay. you can address Augustinianism, German school of thought, why we're in the uh, theological morass that we're in right now. Uh, take it away. Okay. So I think the biggest contribution of heresy to the, the to theology was Augustine. Uh, Augustine brought in uh, allegorical spiritualization of the text, and it got codified in the Catholic Church. They, he also brought in amillennialism because he spiritualized the kingdom. And he also brought in what we know today as Calvinism or, or theistic determinism. And he brought that in from Gnostic Manichaeanism. So that infiltrated the church and was with the Catholic church for all those years. So when the reformers broke away, they only got, you know, the thing of, uh, you know, the doctrine of just justification by faith alone. And that was it. They didn't develop anything else. So they carried with them into the Protestant Reformation, Augustinianism whether that was eschatology or soteriology. And that's why when you go to a Presbyterian church or Reformed church, they will either be post-millennial or all-millennial, and they'll be Calvinistic. Um, and they typically have a replacement view of, of theology in regards to Israel. So that's a carryover from Augustine. And so it's affecting us today. The majority of churches don't believe in any plan for Israel. The majority of churches are Calvinist. 
and the majority of churches are, are post or all millennial. And so his effect has affected what's going on in the church. And this is what put the, put the church to sleep. And that's why the church doesn't see what's going on that you and I are talking about, because they've been told nothing's going on here, guys. It's all good. Come on. What yeah. are you talking mm-hmm. about? And so it's made the church go dead. Yeah. So and then the German school of thought that yeah. slipped in through the German school of thought, which then came in to our seminaries around what time would you say time frame? Yeah, the, the, the German school of thought happened in the late 1800s in Germany, and they started questioning everything, basically the question of the authority of the Bible and whether it was a myth or whatever. And so that that school set up Nazi Germany, by the way, but it infiltrated in America in the early 1900s. The specific university was Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, and therein lies where the beginning of apostasy happened in America. And from there, everything birthed. So that seminary was producing pastors that would fill pulpits that were totally from this German uh, uh, higher criticism of the Bible. And so before you know it, you're sending out pastors who don't even believe in the Bible, don't even believe in Jesus. Well, it started there and it infiltrated other seminaries and spread throughout the entire nation. That's where fundamentalism came as a backlash to it. And this is where the fight's been happening to where we have today, where majority of the church is complete apostasy. But it started back in Union Theological Seminary. Yeah. And you know what? It also seeped into a lot of the seminaries that are putting out pastors today. Today. And yes, so they're questioning, yeah, they're questioning the veracity, the inerrancy of scripture. Yep. Uh, they allegorize a lot of things. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the wokeism in the churches, unfortunately, comes because of that social yes. gospel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pastor Brandon. Wow, we covered a whole ton of stuff. Well, we sure did. <laughs> oh, man, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, hopefully next time uh, we have you on, uh, I don't know what to expect, to be honest with you. Man, you <laughs> I know. know. No telling what's going to happen. No, no telling what's going to happen. So uh, tell people how they can get a hold of your teachings, how they can get a hold of your sermons, how they can, if they feel led by the Lord. I always want to say this first. If you have a home church, give your tithes to your home church first. But if you feel led to uh, support the work that Brandon is doing at Rock Harbor, uh, tell them how they could go ahead and do that. Sure. The easiest thing to do, guys, is go to rockharborchurch.net and go to our our front page there on our website. And it'll have all the links to Rumble, to BitChute, to YouTube, to all of our podcasts. The easiest way to find us is just go to the website and go to the links on that front page. And um, and so, you know, if you desire to, to support us, that's great. You need to support Pablo. I would encourage people to support Pablo financially and prayerfully uh, because we got to keep the ministry running. we got to keep the lights on. So it takes money to do what we're doing. So help Pablo out. And uh, if you if the Lord puts it on your heart, you could help Rock Harbor out. Cool. Um, so. Last thing, because I want to link down below in the description. Tell us the last two places where you were at where people can actually go listen to what you were talking about, the Great Reset. Uh, I think it's it's imperative that people get to know it and know what's behind this whole nefarious movement. So tell us the last two places that you were at and where. And again, I'm going to link it below. Okay. I talked about the Great Reset in Indiana, and I was at a... Um... Oh, 
I can't remember the group's name. It was a Indiana Freedom uh, something. And I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going blank right now. It's all good. But they're in Indiana. But here's the thing. I put I put it on our website, our, okay. uh, our, our channels, like go to Rumble and you'll see me talk about the Great Reset. And then I was in, um, I was in, uh, let's see, I was at you, John you, Howler's church yeah, in Ohio. Yeah, I was going to say that, yep. Yeah, and I spoke about deception in the church. That's on our Rumble and stuff like that. And then I was in uh, El Centro, and I, I talked about um, Putin and his crazy whacked out religion and Gog of Magog. I talked about um, the birth pains of Israel and why Israel signs a, a, a peace deal with the Antichrist. And then I used the deception in the church again there as well. So, but you can go to Rumble. Uh, it, all of uh, all of those things are posted on our Rumble and BitChute, so you can watch them on there. Okay, cool. And again, I'm going to link everything below because uh, the one in El Centro was you, Pastor Tom Hughes. I think Billy Crone was there. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. I think uh, uh, Don Perkins, Evangelist Don Perkins, Don Perkins who's yeah. fabulous too. I've had him Definitely. on. I have to get him back on. So I'm going to link everything. There's no reason for any of you guys to be misinformed or not informed uh, because uh, their ministry is amazing. It ministers to me as well. So uh, please consider also uh, supporting them, especially all of us. I think every single one of us is going to ask for prayer, 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 prayer. Yes, please. Um, so again, uh, like uh, Pastor Brandon said, um, there's two ways that you can go ahead and uh, support the Ministry of Serpents and Doves. I have up here our website at the top right-hand side. There is a donate button. You can go ahead and do that there. And the second way that you could do it is if you go to our online store, uh, there is some gear there. Uh, your support would help me to be able to put more uh, cool gear out just because I am a designer and that is what I love to do. And uh, so again, Pastor Brandon, thank you so very much Bless for you, your time. It was great, great, great. And uh, prayerfully, before we actually cut this off, I don't ever want anybody to not hear the gospel and to not hear the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Why don't you take us away and pray, close us up in prayer for anybody that might want to do that? Sure. Well, if you'll join me with in prayer, and I'll, I can, if you haven't accepted the Lord, it's time to do it now. We're running out of time, and and we're we're the call of urgency is now on us. So. If you'd like, I'll pray this prayer and you can just repeat it. If it's, if it's the sincerity of your heart, God will see it and you can be saved today. So let's pray. Father, I just pray for everyone out there that's listened to this broadcast, Father, that you would touch their hearts. And if they're believers, help them take this message out uh, to this lost world to give them a message of hope that there's an answer to all of this craziness and evil out in the world. And if there's anyone listening today, Father, and they would like to receive Christ by faith, they may do so by acknowledging that they're a sinner that in need of salvation, that Christ died on a cross for their sins, was buried, rose on the third day, and gives everlasting life to anyone who will simply believe. And if they would like to do so, they can pray a simple prayer like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you were buried and were raised on the third day. I trust you now as my Lord and Savior. Take control of my life and take me to heaven if I should die. I pray now in Jesus' name, amen. 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 
Cool. Well, again, I hope you guys were encouraged. Hope you guys were blessed. And I hope you guys were challenged. Uh, until the next time, God bless you guys and uh, keep looking up. See ya. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.